0: I have been doing um, my devotions in uh, Daniel. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm past that now, but actually I'm still working on 12 of it. Just letting the Lord open that to me, and there's such powerful truth there. Um, Daniel, I believe, there was a point where he became uh, deeply discouraged. He had, he had um, looked in the prophets and Jeremiah and seen that the uh, exile should end. And he knew when it would, and the Lord visited him and, and, and all of that. But it, then a couple of years passed, and, and nothing happened. Uh, nothing that he thought would happen. And I think the Lord then meets him. And, we're, and how does God give Daniel hope? And the way he builds his hope is to show him the future. Eschatology, if you want to call it that. You know you know that word eschatology? It's a big word, but it, it simply means this. In, in Greek, I, I've told you often the word teleos is the word that means when something comes to its full maturity, to an end in the sense of growing up into maturity. A, a rose goes from a green bud into a full flower. A, a child grows up into a full adult. That's teleos. But eschatos is different. Eschatos is the end of a row of things. Where you have a, a whole row of, of, of these, it's the last ones. And so it's the last days. When you use eschat- you talk about eschatology, you talk about the last days of this this age of of human history. And so when you talk about eschatology, the, what is God going to do as He brings this age that we're living in now to an end? And you know, a lot of people make fun of that. They laugh about it. One of, one of the jokes is, you know, you've got this pre-trib and post-trib. And some people say, well, I don't know if I'm pre-trib or post-trib. I'm pan-trib. I think it'll all pan out in the end. And, and, and we always laugh uh, dutifully. And uh, we, we, we're, even pastors, one of the great questions they have, they, they don't know what to do with eschatology, with these things of the prophecies, of the things of the end. And yet God considers them tremendously important. Look how much of the Bible is about it. Look how much our Lord Jesus talked about it. I mean, if that's, if that's fanaticism, if that's silly, then the Lord Jesus himself set the way. Paul talks about it a lot. These are, they, they lay these foundations. Why? Because we need it. This is how the Lord spoke to Daniel. He came to, comes to Daniel and is discouraged. And he says, let me tell you what I'm going to do. And the prophecies he gave Daniel were so accurate that to this day there's an argument as to whether they were written after the fact. And the only reason they say that, because there's no proof whatsoever, everything is is in the other way. Everything is the, the proof is that he wrote it. The only reason they say that is it's so accurate people say nobody, nobody can prophesy that accurately. It has to be hindsight. Don't you love it? I mean, they're going to criticize you. Let's have it be because you're so accurate that uh, that uh, nobody can believe you. You knew that stuff ahead of time. Praise the Lord. We're going to talk about that at the men's street. We're going to talk. We're going to talk in a sense about that same subject today. Um, We're on a series on the Holy Spirit, and what I want you to see today. I'm I'm going to do something. I, I I often stand up here and think, what am I doing? You know, But I am going to show you God's prophetic plan. And I'm not trying to be uh, acute. Uh, the, the point is, we need to see where things fit. We need to have a strong sense of it. Look, I can suffer almost anything if I know why. If, if, if I understand what's going on, and I understand the, the situation and what I'm going through, I can endure a lot. But if you take that purpose away from me, if you take that perspective away from me, if it's just suffering for its own sake, I can't last long. And I believe that the Lord wants us to have perspective. He wants us to see where we are and where we're going. I'm going to to teach you things today that I couldn't have told you six months ago. Now, you may say, I knew all of that ahead of time, and I sure wish you would have told me (laughs) 20 years ago. Because when I look at the Bible, I see, I see passages that talk about prosperity and passages that talk about war. I see passages that talk about a, a suffering Messiah, and I see passages that talk about a glorious Messiah. I see passages that talk about, uh, about, about enemies surrounding Israel. I see passages that talk about every man sitting under his vine and his fig tree and prospering in great peace. And I don't know how they all fit together. I don't know what goes where. And so when I'm reading those kinds of things, I get confused. Today, I'm going to try to give you an outline, if you will. I'm going to walk you through it so that as you open the word, you know where things go. Why? So they speak to us. So they make sense to us. So they build us up and make us strong. So we go, okay, God's mightily at work, in fact. The more we look at this, there's you're, you're kind of this wow factor to it where you say, he is powerfully at work right now. We're actually seeing some of these things take place. Holy Spirit, open our ears. We would hear the word of God. Our eyes to see you, Lord. Powerfully the Lord of history. We bring you hearts today that are tender and soft. We would, we would that which is of you, we would believe. And I pray for the grace, Lord to let your word speak and stay out of the way. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here we go. I want you to say uh, some words with me. They're not in your study. I, I, I was going to put them there, and I had so much in there already. I, I did better. My, my judgment was leave it out, but now I'm going to tell it to you. Say, the, say these words with me these words are the what I would call the, the what I'm going to show you in terms of the pattern of God's prophetic plan these are the main elements in order so first of all is restoration would you say restoration, restoration. the second word is tribulation, tribulation. third word is intervention. intervention fourth word is glorification, glorification. let's do it again <laughs> restoration, restoration, tribulation, tribulation. intervention, intervention. Glorification. glorification. One more time. Restoration, restoration. tribulation, intervention, intervention glorification. glorification. I did not understand that, that, that restoration took place before tribulation. I did not understand that. And I've been studying this all my all my years. Uh, but I see it now. And when you see it, Watch what happens. Here we go. This isn't it. We haven't arrived. In fact, we've only just begun. The future God has planned for us will be filled with more and more of the Holy Spirit until it reaches a level of intensity that if we were to experience it today before receiving our resurrection bodies, it would consume us. What God has given us of his spirit in this season of history is wonderful. But compared to what we will have in the ages to come, it is described by Paul as only a first fruits of a much larger harvest. And by the author of Hebrews as the, a foretaste of the powers of the age to come. Look, one of the things I want you to see in this, and you will see as we go through God, what God's prophetic plan and what he's got, is you're headed for more and more and more of the Holy Spirit. This idea that the gifts of the Spirit and the power of God has been somehow removed and we've been left with a book. And I love that book. I devote myself to it. But God has come in power to to have his ministry flow through us. To think that we're headed somehow to less is ridiculous. You and I are headed into more and more and more of the power of God that if we were in it now, where we're headed, it would destroy us. We're going to be God's giving more of himself, more of himself, not less. We are grateful for what God has given us, and we want to learn to walk in the Spirit as deeply as we can, but we still are a people who are waiting for more. Would you say, I'm waiting for more? When we study our Bible, the whole Bible, both Old and New Testaments, we soon discover that there is a very specific plan revealed there concerning the future of the world and our future. In surprising detail, God reveals how he's going to bring this present age to an end and what will take place after that. It seems only, the only information he chooses to withhold are specific names and dates. Though his, pro, pro, through his prophets, apostles, and especially our Lord Jesus... He opens to us the deep counsels of his heart. And I believe he does this for a very important reason. Not to satisfy our curiosity, but to steady us. He wants us to recognize where we are in his great plan. And to be confident of where we're headed. He wants us to see our lives from his perspective. Because that perspective is what will help us endure through hardships. When things seem to be going in the wrong direction, when it seems that God isn't being glorified, when darkness seems to be conquering light, he lifts us up and lets us see the situation as he sees it. um, As merely a passing moment on his prophetic timetable. And that perspective fills us with hope. And it's hope that fills us with joy. And it's the joy of the Lord that restores what? Our strength, yeah. There's an absolute connection there. Hope, and when B- the Bible uses the word hope, it's talking about the, the things that are coming. The promises, the great promises that are, are, are yet to be fulfilled. Uh, not, not just faith in the sense of a daily life, but the great, the great things that God has in his prophetic timetable. Hope, when I, when I understand what's ahead, and I have God's perspective, I have joy, I have joy. People who are depressed lack hope. They, ha- they, they don't see anything coming. They, don't, they have no idea where they are and why, why they're alive. I, I've heard people say recently, I, I have no purpose. And yet they are ostensibly Christians. No purpose. If you and I understand what God's doing, what this is all about. There, there's hardly, there's an urgency that comes to us. No purpose. We're building by our obedience of the family of God. How can you help men and women find Jesus Christ? How can you bring your, his love to them? How can you bring his healing to them? That's your purpose. Figure out how to do it. That's why you're alive. That's why you and I breathe air. We've been made to be children of God. We're, we're part of the process of, of seeing God's heavenly family filled with children. Hallelujah. We are loaded with purpose. So when we get his perspective, hope fills us. Joy fills us. And when you feel that, you have the strength of God and you go out and mow the lawn. When, When we're in those depressed, sad times, we have no energy. You know, it's literally physical. You're tired. You're exhausted. You're overwhelmed. There's just no energy for anything. This is essential. God has always goes after our heart. In our study today, we're going to look at the main elements of the prophetic plan that God has laid out in the Bible. We'll begin with the rejection of Jesus and move forward through the time until we arrive at the new heaven and the new earth. And remember, we're not doing this to satisfy our curiosity, but to steady us. You and I need this perspective as much as the early church did, maybe more. We too need to remember that God is completely in control of the course of human history. No, he is not responsible for the evil choices people make. But in spite of those choices, he is able to guide all things toward his great goal, which is to draw from the human race a family of sons and daughters who have become exactly like Jesus in character and glory. And he won't allow the flow of history to end until every last soul who will come, has come. How important is this? Let me give you an illustration. I saw this when we were going through the, uh, the book of uh, uh, Acts. Paul came to the city of Thessalonica. It was the second city he went to after he arrived in Macedonia, northern Greece. This is on his second missionary journey. He came to town, and this city had never been evangelized. So you've got, you haven't got one Christian in the, in the whole city. Nobody knows anything about this. Paul the evangelist arrives, and he is there for three weeks. It says that in, in Acts 17. He's there for three Sabbaths, and then this, this, uh, this, this situation erupts. Actually, they take one of, the, one, of the, one of the believers and they arrest him and say, "We're not. We're, we're not. We're going to." We're going to punish him unless you leave town. It's really a dirty pool, man. Uh, and they, they hold him. And, and Paul leaves and then goes to Berea. And then he has to flee Berea. And he ends up in Athens. From, from Corinth, he writes a letter. And he writes to them. and it, it, He writes both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. 1st Thessalonians, he talks about the, the rapture. <laughs> he talks about how we'll all, where, where we go when we die. But in Second Thessalonians, he starts with this. He talks about when Jesus comes, dealing out retribution to those who persecuted his his people, and then he says, "Then he says, now there's going to be a man of lawlessness." And he's going to, the Antichrist, and he's going to, there's going to be a time of lawlessness and, and of, of falling away. And he says he's going to take his seat in the temple and declare himself to be God. And then it, he starts going through eschatology. And he said, here's the phrase I want you to see. He says to them, you know I was teaching you these things when I was with you. Now, now how long was he in Thessalonica? Three weeks. Three weeks. Brand new believers. I mean, talk about baby Christians. They have just received the Lord. And he's talking to them about the Antichrist. What is this? Why would he do that? Because they need it. They need to know what they're up against. They need to know the situation. He puts in them hope and perspective. I'm just telling you, the the Apostle Paul thought it was so important. He taught it to people when he'd only been there three weeks. This isn't something just for the, for the old-timers and for, the, for those who are curious, those who are bored and haven't got anything else to do. This is for all of us. We need to know where we are in God's timetable. The order of future events. In order to understand the meaning of a particular prophecy about the future that, that we might encounter as we read through the Bible, we need to know where it fits in the order of events that are described in God's prophetic plan. There is a proper order to those events, and unless we recognize what a, where a passage belongs, what we're reading will be confusing. One passage talks about future blessings; another about judgment. One passage warns of a coming war, while another pictures peace. One passage describes the sufferings of a dying Messiah, while another proclaims what a glorious that a glorious Messiah is coming to rule in power. And without understanding the master plan behind it all, we won't know how. These very different events fit together. Let me show you an example of that. Uh, I'm going to turn to Acts chapter 2. If you want to follow with me. On the day of Pentecost. A great crowd gathered. And. uh, They began to. Somebody suggested that they were all drunk. These people speaking in tongues are all drunk. Peter took exception to that. He stood up. And he addresses the crowd that's watching. And he, first of all, says, no, we aren't drunk. And then he says, verse 16, but this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. That's a very important announcement. You have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit has taken place. People are praying in tongues and glorifying God, men, women, and children, at least 120 of them. And and Peter says, this is what, the prophet Joel said would happen. And then he quotes it. But look at this. Now, here we go. And he says, It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bondslaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit. And they shall prophesy. Now, that's where our sermons usually end. At least where mine end. Because the next verse, you kind of don't know what to do with. <laughs> and he says, And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below and blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Those are, those are, are, are things that have to do with war. Violent war. And so we just we don't even preach it. You just come to that point and go, I don't know why he said that. Kind of wish he hadn't. You ever kind of wish he hadn't? Some of them you're like, why did you put that in? We were, you were going great. You were doing just fine. Then you said that. If you understand what we're talking about today, it fits perfectly. It's exactly right. All right, here we go. I'll tell you later. Here we go. Order of future events. I realize that there are many opinions about what the proper order of these events should be, but the following sequence is the order that I believe the Bible presents. I'll start with an overlooked statement by Jesus concerning his rejection. Number one, the rejection of Jesus. Of course, it goes back before that, but I just have to pick up somewhere and and not do the whole thing. The rejection of Jesus. Matthew and Luke record a statement of Jesus made shortly before his betrayal and arrest. Speaking to a crowd in Jerusalem, he said, why don't you read this out loud with me if you like, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, I w- you will not see me. Until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus says that uh, not long before he's betrayed. A great crowd has gathered. And what he says is, you had a choice. That when I came, you could have received me as Messiah. Now, some did. That's why we have a Bible. But he says, you could have received me and I would have taken you under my wings like a hen does her chicks. Have you ever thought about, well, what would have happened had they done that? It didn't have to be the way it was. What would have happened? I believe that actually, if you look at it, you look at the prophet Daniel for one, Jesus, the Messiah, arrived on exactly The day he should have arrived. Do you know that Daniel's prophecy of weeks ends up on on, uh, Palm Sunday? This was the coming of Messiah. And they could have received him. What you'll find is there isn't a, in the Bible, in the prophets, there isn't a description of 2,000 years of, of evangelization of the Gentiles. There's reference that he came, comes for the Gentiles as well, but, but there's no, there's a, and so people call it this great parentheses. They, they don't know what to do exactly with this season. Paul talks about it even, he says, he calls it a mystery, and he says, you know because there's been a hardness of heart, he said the gospel has gone out to the Gentiles, but he says, don't forget, God's not done with Israel. What? Here's Jesus, and he says, if you had received me, I would have taken you under my wings. Israel's religious leaders and those who followed them rejected the message of the suffering Messiah that Jesus proclaimed. Apparently, they would have welcomed Jesus if he had been willing to lead them into war. But he refused and insisted that he must die as a sacrifice for sin. So when he spoke those words, they had already formed plans to kill him. Though this statement is often overlooked, I think it reveals that Israel's leader, had Israel's leaders responded differently, the promised restoration, what did I say the first word was? The promised restoration would have begun, and God would have evangelized the Gentile world differently. Certain things, such as the cross, had to happen, but they didn't have to happen the way they did. And the result of that rejection was that the spiritual restoration of Israel was postponed. Number two. The crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. And yes, I'm bundling them. Jesus fulfilled his role as the sacrifice for our sins. God vindicated him by raising him from the dead. And then physically lifted him up into heaven and placed all things under his authority. From there, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to indwell his followers. Number three. The first Pentecost. Peter introduced the arrival, the arrival of the baptism of the Holy Spirit as the beginning of the promised restoration of Israel. Does that make sense to you now? Mm-hmm. Peter's saying, all right, it's started. The restoration's begun. Which the prophets had said would take place, look at this, before a time of great tribulation for the nation. Yet because many rejected the Messiah and refused the gospel... The favorable year of the Lord, that's Jesus, he picked that out of Isaiah 61 and used that, became a prolonged harvest of Gentiles. And that harvest has continued for nearly 2,000 years. Let's go back to that prophecy of Joel that we read. It opens up and it talks about, I will pour out my spirit on your sons and your daughters and they shall prophesy. What, would, what is that? Restoration? Tribulation. It's restoration, isn't it? And then it suddenly says, and there'll be blood and smoke and fire and vapor of smoke. And, whatever. and it begins to talk about war. What's that? You see it? Restoration precedes tribulation. God is going to restore. going to restore Israel. Peter says it's already begun. And yet the nation rejected the gospel in large part. And so went out. And we have this great season of harvest of the Gentiles. God always wanted to harvest us. We were always in his heart. But he would have done it another way. The restoration of Israel. But God never changes his mind. He simply reaches his goal another way. And from Moses onward, the prophets declared that there will be a season of regathering Jews into their homeland of restoring the strength and prosperity of the nation of Israel and of corporate repentance toward God and a great outpouring of God's spirit upon all God's, of God's people, both men and women, young and old. This planned outpouring upon Israel was actually interrupted the first time and primarily flowed out to Gentiles who were willing to receive the gospel, but it will not be interrupted again. Along with physical restoration of Israel, there will be a spiritual restoration. You might call it the second Pentecost. The former rains and the latter rains. Yeah, God isn't done. Uh, I, I think the first time I really began to see some of this was in, it was in Israel. Foursquare held its convention there in 2007. And uh, that was quite a time. We actually took 125 people and we all went and been going ever since. But... One of our speakers uh, began to say, he said, Don't you, he said, do you realize that the big Pentecost hasn't happened yet? That we're on our way to the big Pentecost. And I suddenly said, I hadn't seen that. I hadn't seen that. What's begun isn't done. And as, as, as the coming of the Lord draws near, he's pouring out in this last season, he's pouring out his Holy Spirit at a far greater level. But it will not be interrupted again. Along with physical restoration of Israel, there will be a spiritual restoration, the second Pentecost. No longer will Jesus be seen as a false Gentile God, but as the Jewish Messiah that he is. Works righteousness will give way to the righteousness of faith. People will place their trust in, in the gift of God's Son on the cross, and this spiritual renewal, along with jealousy because of the nation's growing prosperity, will provide pr- provoke a coalition of Gentile nations to attack Israel, and that will culminate in a war that is prophesied over and over again. Let me take you somewhere. Let's, I'm going to go to uh, Ezekiel this time. Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Ezekiel sees this restoration. He's talked about it actually in uh, earlier chapters. Well, all of them do. I say it does. Uh, it, they, they all see it. But this is very, very beautiful. In, in chapter 37, you have a um, a prophecy, a vision that Ezekiel had that we all love a lot. It's the Valley of Dry Bones. Ezekiel is shown this valley and it's full of dead men's bones, scattered all over. I mean, they're, they're, and they're in separated from one another. Not just skeletons, they're all just scattered all over the, over the floor of this thing. And the Lord says, what do you see? He said, I see, I see bones. And he said, now I want you to prophesy to the bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. I will cause a breath to come into you and you may enter. And, he, and they're to come together. And so the bones start coming together. And they form skeletons and then, then Ezekiel is told to prophesy to the sinews and to the flesh. This, in other words, the skin and the muscles and all. He says, prophesy. So the bones come together. And then they're covered with muscle and flesh. They become strong. But they're still dead. And then he says, he says to them, I, in, in verse 9, prophesy to the breath. Because you just have corpses now. You have dead corpses lying all over this valley, but they're not alive yet. So he says, prophesy to the breath and say to the breath, come from the four winds, breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and the breath came into them and they stood upon their feet, an exceedingly large army. What's he talking about? The restoration of Israel, of God's people. Let me put something in here right now. In God's economy, everyone who believes in Jesus Christ is part of the great family, going back to the promise of Abraham. So in his mind, you're Jewish. Do you understand that? Mm -hmm. There aren't different families. Paul calls it in in Romans 11, uh, the uh, olive tree. And he says it has its roots, of course, in Abraham and Sarah. And in the promises given to them, And he says, some of the branches have been cut off because of unbelief. And you, from from a wild olive tree, have been grafted into this tree. There's only one tree. We're part of a great family of men and women who have repented and trusted by faith in the living God. And called on his name from the very beginning. Do you you follow that? So the promises are for us. There's not a, but. He has made a commitment to Abraham's children. Why? Because Abraham and Sarah prayed for their children and believed that God would do what he said. Has anyone in here prayed for your children? How long do those prayers... What's the shelf life on a prayer like that? I mean, when you pray for your children and grandchildren, does he quit at the second generation? Maybe the third? When does he stop? When he honors your faith, when does he stop? Oh, something like a thousand generations is said somewhere... In there, if I recall. He's still keeping his promise to Abraham and Sarah to watch over their children and to draw them to you. That's how long he'll keep his promise to you as well, by the way. It's a powerful part of God's character. All right, so he's still working. So he says, I'm going to restore. And so here's Ezekiel seeing it. The, the, The nation will be taken from its scattered condition and brought together. Then it will be given strength. It will rise up. Do you realize what's happening in Israel right now? There's now over six, I think it's six and a half million Jews in Israel. That's kind of a powerful number, isn't it? Considering what happened in, in, in the Holocaust and the horror of all of that, there are now over 6 million Jews in Israel. Then there's, there's 2 million, over 2 million um, uh, Arabs and para- Palestinians. So the, the nation is, is like 10, moving from 8 to 10 million people. It is the number four technology source in the world. It is, uh, right now, Israel is building a huge desalinization plant for, for ocean water for the state of California. They are a source all over the world of technology and help. They've got, they've got these teams that go all. There's a muscle and strength to Israel. The bones have come together. The flesh is covering. And then what? Then it rises up with breath. And I didn't finish that. Look at verse 14. Then God says, I will put my spirit where? Amen. Within you. And you will come to life. And I will place you on your own land. And then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and have done it. Now, don't, don't lose your place. I will restore you spiritually as well. And that's what's happening. That's what's beginning now. And then, he, then look at the next chapter. Chapter 38 follows verse, chapter 37 in my Bible. And what happens in chapter 38? All of a sudden, we're talking about Gog and Magog and Rosh and Meshach and Tubal. And we're talking about the Antichrist and a great assembly of armies which will come against Israel and attack it. After restoration comes what? It's right there. In fact, it's there everywhere you'll look. There will be a great restoration. I want to suggest to you that the restoration has begun. It, it, I mean, I I suppose (laughs) maybe there's not, but it sure looks like it. Bones have been coming together, muscle and sinews covering the body. The breath is in it, rising up as a great people. There's, there's now we're praying constantly and and seeing spiritual awakening uh, going on. God is doing that, and He's in the process. The Antichrist army will invade Israel, surround Jerusalem, and capture it. Zechariah says it. He'll, he'll, he'll capture it. So this, all of this prosperity all, and, and this spiritual renewal will draw a hostile force of nations around it. Not Europe. The nations around it will, will surround it. I, I don't know if you see anything like that going on. <laughs> In case you wonder where you are on the clock. And you see, they will then attack it and they will actually uh, they'll put their camp in in, in, the, in, in in Israel and they will attack. And then God will begin to fight. Number five, the return of Messiah. Restoration, tribulation. What's the next one? Intervention. Intervention. When it looks like all is lost, a series of remarkable events will occur. The first resurrection will take place during which all the righteous dead will be clothed with their immortal body. This is when the first resurrection takes place. Those believers who are alive and living on the planet will also be clothed with their resurrection body and will, be, will then rise up into the air to join the great host of angels and resurrected believers who are coming with Jesus as he returns to the earth. His arrival will initiate the destruction of the forces that had invaded Israel. Joel calls this event the Valley of Jehoshaphat, Yahweh judges the apostle John calls it Armageddon and the great winepress of the wrath of God as this begins to, as, as this tribulation comes to its final point where it's about to destroy Jerusalem and, and, and Israel, the heavens open and Zechariah says that Messiah comes and he comes to, and leads this great army he, he comes and you know where he arrives right on the Mount of Olives. Where did he leave from? Yeah, he comes right back to where he left. And The angel said he'll, he'll come in the same way he went. You know, he's not kidding. He will come, and it actually says that mountain will split and all kinds of stuff happen. I mean, he's in charge, man. He, he doesn't, we don't come back. He comes back in full power. The Messianic kingdom. After these enemy forces are destroyed... Jesus will set up his throne in Jerusalem and rule over the entire earth for 1,000 years. I didn't make that number up. But it's not a guess. It says it. Those who were resurrected will rule with him, extending his authority and ministry as his representatives. The planet will still be populated with mortal humans who are born and die. See, the only thing that died in Armageddon or the great Winepress of God is the Antichrist's army. Not the whole world. Everybody isn't dead. Millions, billions of people are alive. But the army was destroyed. And they will have opportunity to receive Jesus as their savior. Jesus himself will be physically present and his throne will be in Jerusalem. During this millennium, the mortal human population will be forced to live righteously. And the earth will be immersed in a very intense level of the presence of the Holy Spirit. One which is so strong that the curse which has been upon the earth and the animal world will be removed. What what will happen? The lion will lay down with the lamb, and the and the child, young child, will play by the adder's hole, and on and on. Violence, killing, roadkill will be gone. Hallelujah! I'm going to be. I will not miss that. Here's what you got to understand you and I who know the Lord Jesus Christ, if we, are, if we have died and those who've gone on before us and who are dead, uh, they are right now conscious in their spiritual body in the presence of the Lord and with, with believing loved ones and, fam- and friends. They will at that moment put on their resurrection body. Their solid, immortal body that they'll have forever. Forever. Those who are alive and remain, they put on theirs and rise and meet them. And this great host comes back with Jesus. No fighting is done. He, he deals with it. He, he, I, he uses 100-pound hailstones, which I think is a very effective tool. Um, that, that would do it. No wonder you call it the great wine press of God. You know? yes. and I'll not I'll stop. And. But he, and you've destroyed this, but what happens then is you, he rules the earth in righteousness. And he uses his people. You may think to yourself, when I die, all the things I've learned are is lost. All of, the, all of the character development, all of the lessons that have been poured into me. Now it's, it's ended, I'm, it's over. No, no, no. You just step across. Who you are doesn't change. You step right into the next, and you and I are going to be serving with the Lord. What does that mean? We administrate on His behalf. We also minister on His behalf. You still have a human population. Now, I'm not making. You know, I suppose you think you're crazy. No, I'm not. I'm biblical. This is what the Bible says. You and I will rule and reign with Him. The lessons you're learning now, the character you're developing now, the faithfulness you're sowing now. All gets translated into the next season. I had somebody ask me not too long ago. It was, it was some, uh, anyway. They said, um, Pastor, I I don't know how to say this, but uh, I'm told that heaven is just singing, that we're going to go to heaven and we're going to sing. And uh, I like to sing. He said, But be honest with you, that sounds kind of boring. Are we going to do that forever? I mean, is there anything else uh, but singing? um, or worship, you know. Um, look, the next, here's what you have when you, when you look at, at, at the apostles, when you look at the Lord Jesus, when you look at the great prophets. They all knew what was next. And, and what's next isn't sitting on a cloud or knocking on heaven's pearly gates. What's next is the kingdom of God. What do you pray when you pray the Lord's Prayer? Thy that isn't just oh God come and bless us they knew what the kingdom was there is a kingdom ahead of us people it's the messiatic kingdom he comes back and he rules in power and you and I rule with him Jesus actually talks about this remember when Peter comes to him and he says we have left everything what's in it for us And Jesus says, you who have left houses and farms and brothers and sisters and all of that will have in this life many times as much and then in the next eternal life. And then he says, and you will sit on 12 thrones judging the house of Israel, you apostles. We're told in Revelation, we will rule with him. That means not boss everybody around, though I think there's some of that in it. But it primarily means minister. You have, as you've been faithful in this life, that responsibility is translated into the next life and in this next season of the kingdom. And that's what you will be doing. The more faithful you are here, he says, the more I'll give you to be responsible for. The less you've been faithful, the less you will, the less you will do. I suppose we grow in that season. Souls are being won. And there's a thousand years of righteousness. Now what? At the end of this thousand-year period, God will test the human population once more by releasing the devil from the abyss into which he had been placed. He will again be allowed to stir rebellion against the lordship of Jesus Christ. This will produce a resuscitation of the Antichrist kingdom and its armies will again surround Jerusalem and prepare to attack. That's kind of remarkable, isn't it? But the attack won't be allowed before it happens. Fire will come down from heaven and destroy them. Why does he do that? Well, we're not told, so I don't know. The, my guess is, one, you had people who have been more or less trapped in righteousness. Bad deal. They have to do right, live righteously and cleanly. So they are blessed and they're prospering, but, you know, they have to do it. And... and we, we often think that people don't come to God because of ignorance, that they don't know any better. And what God's gonna show in that I, act, I think, is that's not the issue at all. Everybody knows God is real. Everybody knows Jesus is the savior. In fact, you can go visit him. You can go over to Israel and take a selfie with him. I mean, I, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but, but He, who knows, he's a, he's a very joyful person. He might, you you, you can see him. And yet, it says that the army that rises up against him will be like the sands of the seashore. A whole lot of people will want their independence. I think people turn away from God, not out of ignorance at all. I think the Bible says no one is. I think it's rebellion. It's independence. Don't tell me what to do. And don't tell me I can't do these things. And we push him out of our lives. So I think there's there's actually a teaching purpose in it. The second resurrection and the judgment. Then God will begin his final judgment. The devil, the antichrist, and the false prophet will be dealt with first. And then the unrighteous dead will be resurrected and judged. According to a written record of their life. And finally death itself and the place where the dead spirits had waited for this moment of judgment. Will be sent into the fire of God. The release, number nine, of God's glory. Up until this moment, God had always restrained the glorious fire of his holiness. That brilliant light that blinded Paul and left Moses' face shining had to be restrained or it would destroy the created universe. Only in heaven could his glory shine freely. But after the final judgment, a threshold is passed. John saw that moment in a vision and he said that when the, when the Lord takes his throne Earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. Would you say that? Earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. That means that they disappeared and never returned. It seems to me that the unrestrained glory of God will literally evaporate the created universe to make way for a new one. It's, it's Revelation 20, verse 11. And when, when we taught through the book of Revelation, and I came to that, I'm reading this and it says he takes his seat and then it says from his presence, earth and heaven fled away and there was no place for them. And I know that phrase means they disappear entirely. They completely are gone and never come back. And I thought, I looked at that and I thought, presence, huh? I thought it was fire. Which is it? Fire or presence? Fire or presence? And oh. It's his, the fire of his presence. Look, God, there's something about it, and you see it all through the Bible, about his glory, about his holiness, his very living being, which fills everything, that actually, when he allows it, shines with a brilliant light. Whenever heaven is open, this light comes. Is there, you know, and and uh, when Paul, we, I mentioned that when Paul looked at it, it literally sca- damaged his eyes to the point that they scaled over and everything else. They were they were injured physically. It's such a powerful thing. I believe that God restrains that glory right now. It, it's I think it's there in, in in heaven and all, but if He were to let it go, it will literally evaporate everything that's not resurrected. So what what's going to happen to you and me? Well. In fact, all, all people, uh, righteous and unrighteous, are resurrected, put into a new state so that we can literally endure that glorious power and, light and fire of God. Well, the universe, when, he, when, he, when the Lord releases that glory, it just evaporates. It's gone. And then Revelation 21 says, he, I saw a new heaven and earth. So he makes one now, of whatever it needs to be that can endure this glory. Do you know where you're headed? You're headed into an eternity in which the power of God is so strong that there's literally no sun or moon that lights the place. The whole place is just brilliant light. We are on our way into an eternity of the power of the Holy Spirit at a level that would destroy us, new heaven and earth. The apostle John was also shown a new heaven And a new earth. I think God will create a new universe. Which is able to withstand the full glory of his presence. In effect the creation itself. Must be remade of materials which are immortal. Like our resurrection bodies. So that they can endure in a future. So full of the Holy Spirit. that There will be no need for a sun or a moon to give light. Conclusion. When you listen to, the, to Jesus or the apostles or the great prophets of Israel, you hear people who have a very clear picture in their minds of what will happen next in God's prophetic plan for human history. Their understanding of tomorrow was so distinct, so tangible, so beautiful that it dramatically changed the way they live now. But somewhere over the course of the centuries, those understandings were lost. Many of us today open our Bibles and are confused by what we read. We see prophetic passages, but we don't know where they fit. And as a result, we ignore what the Bible says about our future. Yet if you and I are going to live our lives well and face death boldly, we need to understand God's plan. No, we don't need to know all the details. We don't need to spend our time guessing names and dates but we do need to understand what God has chosen to reveal because that knowledge has a powerful impact on us. It gives us perspective and God's perspective fills us with hope and it's hope fills us with joy and it's the joy of the Lord that does what? It stores our strength. My hope, my desire, what I feel like the Lord wants us to do it's the reason we went through this is not curiosity but it's to have a sense of God's plan of the order of things why so that as you open your bible and read and you come across these great prophecies and these great views of the future and you read things and you think where does that fit Hopefully, this has helped. You'll have a sense of, oh, we're talking about that here. We're talking about this here. People, that make sense. It's not, this is the thing about the Bible. You'll have people say it's full of, 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 of contradictions. I have spent a life in it. And when I, I, I study in the original languages... I, 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 and I, have, I believe I have a level of integrity. I'm trying to be honest with what I see. In other words, if I see a real conflict, if I see a real contradiction, then I'll admit it. If something doesn't make sense, I'll admit it. I, 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 have to, I have to be integrous. I've spent a life in this book. Not only is it, have I, I've seen things I didn't understand, still have some. But contradictions, foolishness, confusion, not at all. Not at all. In fact, the more you study archaeology, the more you study history, the more you begin to look into the things. Do you realize how much, hist- how much archaeology right now is proving the Bible? There is not one thing that disproves. Do you know what? Th- I just told you the other day that they had found the seal of the king, uh, king Hezekiah. Remember? What I didn't know is they've just found the seal of the prophet Isaiah. It's on display right now as I speak in in, Kansas, in, in Oklahoma City. Yeah, they've, they've got a traveling thing. And you know what a seal is? When, when you'd write something, you'd tie it with you know, string and then you take a little bit of mud and you have a seal that hangs around your neck or on a ring and you take that and you imprint it into the wet mud. It dries and it, it, it marks it yours it says Isaiah and then it has the word prophet with the first letter missing we've got Isaiah's these men and women all lived these and they what they're telling us is coming true right in front of our eyes and when I begin to see that I'm full of hope and I realize oh man God is fully in control we're on track. I need to be about my father's business. Do you, do you feel that? These are important days, people. It, I know it's, I know you look at it, I look at it. I'll just speak for myself, and I can see confusion and I see things that make me sad. The Bible says that'll happen too. But it says that the Lord is above all things, and that He's mightily in control. And that he's bringing all things to a conclusion. He's taking this earth and he's wringing it out. Till every last soul that will come has come. He's doing that right now and he's doing it on our watch. So our job is to say, Lord, how can you use me? How can I serve you? What have you called me to do? I'm going to live my life in light of what you have told me. Heavenly Father, we love you we trust you we open our hearts some of us come today and we come with sadness and weariness we're overwhelmed with some of the the, the things we deal with and we ask you to take and fill our hearts with hope living hope in the mighty hand of God and the plan of God and the purposes of God fill us with hope Lord and may that hope release joy And may the joy of the Lord be our strength. Come, Lord, strengthen your sons and daughters. Make us strong in this season, steady us, that we will stand and not shift in these times. We love you and we love your word in your precious name. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website lifelessonspublishing.com that's life lessons publishing.com There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written